Hi, everyone. This is Tech and Ed Tech. In this podcast, we discuss technology that powers education and improves learning for all. In today's episode, we will be focusing on workforce skills. I'm your host, Dan Gizzi from Magic Ed Tech, and our guest for this special edition podcast is Sean Stowers, CEO and Chief Learning Officer at WeLearn. Sean, thanks for joining me today and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I appreciate you joining today. So I, we go back more years than I will tell our audience that we go back. Um, I'd love to know just a little bit more for our, and for our audience's sake, your background and you know some of the things you've been doing since our days in publishing. Sure. So um, I started my career in learning at IBM uh, in the late 90s. Um, my first job was selling end-user desktop training and teaching people how to use uh, Word, Excel, and Lotus Notes. Um, from there, um, went to New York where I joined a uh, large global publishing company in a division that was focused on financial services training. Um, kind of worked in a number of roles in that large global publishing company that you and I both worked for. Um, got to do some really cool projects and um, do some interesting work along the way. And then um, about seven years ago, decided that I was looking to do something different and and that something different was to be an entrepreneur and and start my own learning and development consultancy, which is WeLearn, which is, um, you know, focus on uh, building better humans through learning. So that's a little bit about me and kind of how I got into L&D. Such a great journey. And obviously, uh, you know, friend and colleague, I've, I've enjoyed watching uh, the journey together and I'm from the sidelines as well. You know, I think, you know, one of the areas that I, I was hoping to focus on with you and, and understand a little bit more as you've you know taken this entrepreneurial route is, you know, in the context of learning and workforce development, you know, we've heard an awful lot about it. You know, you and I have talked an awful lot about it from multiple angles as well in, in our careers of, you know, personal learning. You know, so personalization has always traditionally been something that's been, you know, very useful and very highly focused from anywhere in the case space up to, you know, higher education as well. You know, when we start to think about employee learning and the journey beyond, you know, uh, continuing education or workforce skills, you know, what does personalization and learning mean to you? Sure. So I think personalization in learning let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean necessarily that there is a different, unique learning experience for each and every individual, right? So I think, let's just say off of the bat, right? Individual customization of learning is not, in my opinion, what personalization means. But let me let me talk about what I do think it means. So number one is I think, um, you know, as learning designers, as builders of learning, um, I do think it is uh, in a, a recognition that, learning is personal and not one size fits all for learning. I think too often in the context of corporate learning, of workforce development, we, we spend a lot of time thinking we're going to build this monolithic program and everyone's going to come in and go through that program. And, you know, we want them to stand back and admire the engine that we built. And unfortunately, that's just not the way it works, right? So I think that when it comes to personalization, what does that mean, building in? It means, number one, building in um, context for your learner, for them to identify with um, their particular situation or their, their particular point in the learning journey and understand why this learning is important to them. The second piece is, is that you provide 
learning in the modalities that are most meaningful to the individual. Um, we all learn differently. We all learn in different ways. Um, you know, I think about uh, a, a conversation I had actually this past weekend with a learner in a workforce development program who was, um, you know, just talked about the fact that uh, she was attending labs multiple times um, because she was a perfectionist and she had anxiety about this. And, and I remember just sitting with her and saying, hey, this is a safe environment. This is why we provide this environment. You don't need to feel anxious about um how you're perceived in this environment because everyone's in the same boat, right? Everyone's on the learning journey with you. And I think that building that context is super important. I think finally, um, you know, I think personalization of learning is also about having some empathy for your learner and recognizing that not every learner who comes into a program or experience that you developed has the same relationship with learning that you do. Um, there are um, just so many people in our workforce and our population that have been told that they are, you know, not smart, they're not capable, they're not worthy. Um, and, and so, you know, those are the same people that are coming into your program who immediately that, that, that lack of structural support in their lives immediately come right, races to the front of their brain and, and immediately, you know, that is a barrier for them to being successful in the program. And I think, you know, personalization and having empathy for that learner and, and, and saying up front that, you know, again, we're all in this journey together. We may start at different points, but our goal is to get us all to the same place is super important. I think there's some interesting points in there I'd like to expand on a little bit around empathy as well as the anxiety um, and try and maybe bring that into how, how can addressing those two points, for example, create a more impactful or you know, for a lack of a better term, fun and learning environment for, for an end user? Yeah, yeah. I love that question. I think in some ways, right, we, we're, as a, I think as humans, we tend to be competitive. And, and I think as humans, we also fear um, being judged. And I think, again, like I go back to that conversation I talked about with that learner in a, in a lab setting who was um, super anxious about how they would be perceived and the fact that it took them longer to learn something and, and just reiterating to that learner in that moment that, that the lab was a safe, safe place, that it was a, a place for experiment, experimentation, but also failure. Failure is okay. Right. And I think sometimes we forget to, to say that up front. Right. I think about the, you know, programs that I have been in where, um, you know, there, there would be, it would be great if someone stood in the front of the room and said, hey, you know what? In this exercise, there's no wrong answers, right? Failure is acceptable. We, we learn um, from our failures. Um, I, I think um, there's a, a great uh, acronym that uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Keith Keating, uh, uses and says FAIL stands for first attempt in learning, right? I think if we put that mentality out there rather than, oh my God, you have to master this in, in this amount of time. And, and if you don't master in this amount of time, you know, th this program hasn't met its needs or you're not meeting expectations. I think that if we remove some of that, right, I think it becomes, it becomes far more accessible to folks. I think that the other thing that I, I just, I come back to all the time is 
you know, learning is fundamentally a struggle, right? It is a struggle to learn something new. You're, you're trying to master a new skill, a new concept. Um, nobody's good at it the first time. Even the best learners aren't good at it the first time. Some people just pick it up quicker. So I think it's those sort of things. If, if we were maybe a little bit more honest, if we, if we built that message into what we were doing, um, I think that you would find that learning would become far more inclusive. Those are great points there. I think from even from the inclusion and, and the equity piece of that, it's, you know, we've, we've always used learning, whether consciously or subconsciously, as a way to separate, right? You know, separate those from the haves that have, that have nots and in, in any capacity as well. So, you know, to, to kind of expand to say on a point uh, in that front, um, you know, what are some of the areas, for example, when you're wearing your chief learning officer hat for a second? that um, you can utilize that type of mentality to create equal access or equal opportunities in learning? Sure. I, I love that question. And I think there's, there's a couple of things I'll say there. So number one is I think that you recognize that everyone is worthy of investment. Um, so I think for a long time, when it came to learning, investments in learning were prior, uh, primarily made in white collared white collared knowledge workers, um, and and certainly you would see you know investments in you know how do you do your job if you're on the front line, but beyond that you know the the frontline roles the 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 roles that um, perhaps were viewed as more transient in terms of uh, high turnover et cetera weren't invested in. I think that we saw a change in that um, even prior to the pandemic. You know, there were some great programs, uh, great programs out there like Amazon and their career choice, pro career choice program, McDonald's and the Art Choice Opportunities program. We see organizations like Guild Education that have gotten into this employee education as a benefit model. But I think that that beyond access to, you know, whether that is uh, access to the GED, access to English language training or posts some form of uh, post-secondary certification or post-secondary educational experience. I think in general, realizing that all aspects of your organization are worthy of that investment in training is super important. And I think it comes back and you, you touched on the DEI thing for a minute there, Dan. And I think it would, it, you know, in, in so many ways as, as a society, as, as human beings, right? We have found ways to create pathways other dumb, um, you know, whether that is, you know, we, we make, uh, we make determinations of otherdom as on the basis of race, on the race basis of sex, on the basis of ability. We, we've, we've created that, that structure. And I think, you know, we can begin to dismantle that when we again look at all of our employees and say they deserve investment. Um, because what's, what we know and what we see in the data is that when people feel that they're invested in, when people feel that they have Opportunities for development, they stay, they work harder, they're more productive, um, customer satisfaction increases, revenues increase. Um, you know, the, 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 the data is there to, to show that investment in, in, in development pays off. I think, I think we just have to, um, you know, embrace that a bit more. I think those are great points. You know, I'm, I'm going to throw you a bit of a wrinkle. So I did, we didn't prep for this and, and it wasn't in our notes prior. So, you know, traditionally, when we've talked about 
adult education or workforce education. It's always been historically talked about the upskilling of the employer, the upskilling of the workforce. You know, one of the things that we've seen with the dramatic shift in not only just the way that workers engage and the workforce engages, you know, due to due to the pandemic or due to just, you know, the, the ever-evolving uh, world since then, has been the shift from upskilling to reskilling. You know, the differences between the two are very stark, you know, where an entire workforce, you know, they're, they're all, all of, you know, the data is pointing to that, you know, within the next 10 years, over a billion people are actually going to need to be reskilled versus upskilled, you know, where there's that complete shift of the workforce taking on not just what would move them to the next level in their career, but complete career changes. You know, so do you have any thoughts on that? I'd love to get your take on I do. I, I think my thought on that is in so many ways, when this conversation comes up, it is this radical, this idea of radical reskilling. So we're going to take someone who's a hairdresser and we're going to turn them into a cybersecurity professional. We're going to take someone who does X job and turn them into Y person. And I think that there are always going to be examples of, of radical reskilling, but I think the thing that gets lost in that conversation a lot of times is just that in so many ways, the opportunities for reskilling and the opportunities for upskilling are really not always that radical, right? It's, it's not always that radical. It is, it is a lot of times far more mundane and unsexy and, and, um, in a number of ways requires um, far more almost hand-to-hand combat, if you will. Like you're you're gonna be far more involved in in delivering that upskilling or reskilling because the people that you're wanting to that most need the upskilling or reskilling um, are going to be people that have probably been left out of the pathway of educational attainment to b- begin with. So we go back to those people who have relationships with learning that are far different than ours. And, and I just think that, you know, it, 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 it's going to be far more intensive than, than, again, what I think sometimes this notion of, oh, you can put out a digital program and just, you know, reskill someone to go from this, this job to this job. And they're going to go from making, you know, $50,000 a year to $120,000 a year. Those are stories. I mean, those are great stories. Those are great headlines, but, I think again, when you look at the 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 populations that are most likely going to be reskilled, need to be reskilled, those aren't the populations that necessarily are going to go, you know, are 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 going to be even with reskilling equipped to go into that hundred and twenty thousand dollar a year job. Maybe. But I just think there's I think it's um I just think it's more intensive and less sexy than some of the let radical reskilling conversations out there. In an attempt to continue the less sexy part of the conversation, I'm going to ask you to switch your hats back to, to your CEO hat yeah. for a minute. So, yeah. you know, as someone who who has made what many would consider a very radical change in their own career, you know, from the safety of larger organizations to that path and treading out in a world that you really, you know, probably one scary, right? Probably was very scary yes. to think about. I'm going to completely blow my blow blow my my own model up. Um, 
when you're out there having that level of conversation as a CEO, say to another CEO or CFO of a company that's struggling for their for their own side to understand what an ROI will be to spend this kind of money for their employees, right? Learning and development yeah. has always been a cost center or treated like a cost center, for example. You know, what are some of the things that, you know, maybe from your own personal experience or just, you know, obviously being successful in, in the industry that you used to employ, for example, to show, hey, this is why you should be doing this. This is why you should be sure. spending this money in your employees. You know what? That's a great that's a great question. And I think that first of all, remember that the ROI calculation has more to do with just what was the cost of training and 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 did someone learn something, right? So I think, you know, when depending on what the program is and what the goals of the program, you begin to look at, okay, how do you quantify the impacts that that come from the 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 initiative. So let's just take, for example, um, you know, Allied Health, right? So a tip, uh, the average turnover cost of replacing an Allied Health technician in the U.S. right now, with the with, with few exceptions, you know, hovers around you know six thousand dollars per position, right? Um, the average top cost of turnover. For an allied health role, we saw one study um, for clinical medical assistance for a hospital system that said, you know, their cost total cost of turnover for an allied, a, med, a clinical medical medical assistant was fourteen thousand dollars. So you kind of look at that and go, okay, so my cost to replace is six thousand. My total cost of turnover, you know, is you know, let's call it fourteen thousand. Could be fifteen, twenty thousand for a for a medical assistant, right? Well, if you begin to get, then say, okay, what does it cost for me to reskill someone inside of the organization to go from, say, um, uh, a non-clinical role into that clinical role? What does what does that investment look like? And maybe that investment, you know, is five thousand dollars, six thousand dollars. Well, if if you look at it in that way, right? Then hey, if you're if it's costing you five or six, if it's costing you six thousand dollars. Then hey, you're meeting your kind of basic replacement costs, but you know you don't have the other costs associated with that because you know you're taking an existing employee, you're re- you're training them, and then you're putting them in the role. You don't have the recruitment costs, you don't have the talent acquisition costs built into that. To that, you do not have the cultural onboarding costs associated with that. So I think when you look at these sort of initiatives, you you really do have to look around and go, what are the things that I'm impacting? Right. In learning, we don't always think about the fact that we maybe are saving on the talent acquisition costs that we're saving a turnover cost. And that's part because we, there's a silo between us and talent acquisition. A lot of times we don't look around and say, what are those other data points around us that I need to understand that I can connect my work to? And I think that that's probably the big conversation that I try to have with organizations is to say, where, what, where is this, where is the pain? that corresponds to what we're solving and how will we know that we have solved for that pain and what does what does solving for that pain look like in terms of the results that we'll be able to say that we have achieved. So to, this will be the last question before we wrap up. So taking the allied health example you just gave, solving the, the, the investment piece of it, where are you wearing now your futurist hat? You know, what sort of model of L&D do you predict for five years from now that will actually help solve that problem beyond obviously the, the training and development yeah. needs. Um, and, and do you feel that, you know, the role of AI in that futurist model as well? 
Yeah. So I think I love that question. So I think the role for me, if I look at the role of it, so first of all, I think if we just look at allied health, I think that ultimately the um, the lens on what the pathways, what are the possible pathways, um, is going to to widen, right? So I think you know you and I both spent time in higher ed. We both we both know and can and, and, and can point to any number of programs where some of what would be considered the the allied health roles, whether that's medical assistant, pharmacy technician, et cetera. You know, there were there were any number of institutions that were out there promoting an associate's degree in those fields. The reality is, is that an associate's degree isn't required for those fields. And and unfortunately, I think there were a lot of people that went not unfortunately, the reality is that there were a lot of people that went for those sort of degrees and walked out with levels of student debt that were perhaps not um not um, commiserate with the salaries that they walked into. And therefore, you know, that promotes turnover, right? If people can't pay their bills and the salaries that they're getting, they're going to turn over. They're going to continue to make decisions based on, you know, how do they make their lives easier? Um, so now I think that looking at that in, in a lot of industries, it's going to be widening the lens. It is going to be widening the lens in terms of what is acceptable education to get in those roles. It's going to widen the lens in terms of um, the audiences that we look to. I attended a great session last night that talked about fair chance, second chance hiring, and and how do you look at people who have maybe been justice impacted and bring them into roles? And you know, I think that's going to be something that plays into this. So then, to the second part of your question about AI, you know, one of the ways I think AI plays a role in this is to the extent that AI can begin to act as an advisor and provide guidance to somebody in the absence of a live coach, right? So I'm, I'm a big believer that, man, if we gave every one of our employees um, an annual kind of career counseling or academic advising, learning advising conversation that helped them decide how to invest their time in learning, I, I think that investment would pay off in spades. I think AI has an opportunity to play a role in that where, you know, whether you're using natural language processing, you know, bots built within a learning ecosystem that allows someone to tell you a little bit about their interests, what they're good at, and, and you begin to feed them content to say, hey, maybe look at these sort of careers or people with your interests tend to kind of gravitate to these sort of opportunities. This is how they're interrelated. I think those sort of things become super interesting to help someone arrive to the point that they then maybe get to talk to a human. So I think AI has a role. I think um, we're not there yet, um, but I could see that as the future of where AI can play. Any parting thoughts or advice for organizations in our audience? Yeah, I think that um, my, my, my biggest advice is, don't be hemmed in by what you believe we have to do. I think that there's a ton of room for innovation and exploration out there. And, you know, sometimes that's scary. I mean, it, it's certainly scary to think about that, but it's also really re rewarding. So I, I, I would say, like, don't be afraid to try something new. Don't be afraid to tinker with what you're doing and, and to, to push to think, is there a better way? Sean, thank you for joining me today on the latest Tech and Ed Tech Workforce Skills Edition podcast. 
We appreciate your insight and look forward to you and our audience joining us in future podcasts.